Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And this is a show where we watch Revolutionary Girl Utena, the 1997 anime, and give our review of it. Today we are on episode 29, Azure Paler Than the Sky. This is a, a part two, so if you haven't heard the first part of this one, you want to go back an episode and listen to that one, because this is the one of only a handful of two-parters in the entire series. And this one is about Ruka, who has returned to the school and has entered the, the dueling game once again. Uh, the episode opens with like a brief recap of last time and like some of the stuff from prior plot arcs that was relevant. It's really just like disconnected images and lines. And if you didn't catch those episodes, I don't know how you're supposed to understand this now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But they do kind of like tease and remind you of like what happened before to bring us to this point. Um, Specifically the scene in which Shiori is pretending to have like polished Ruka's sword while he was away and he explains to her like that isn't even his sword he knows she's lying and then we cut to the present moment where Shiori is like begging Ruka not to leave her and she's doing this in full view of the school they're having this fight in the courtyard and there are students on every floor of all the buildings looking out at the courtyard below and watching the spectacle play out. There are students in the courtyard. It almost feels like there was a school announcement saying, hey, come to the courtyard for some shit to go down. I was just going to say that. This was like a planned event at Otori Academy today. <laughs> like everybody knew at 12 o'clock, look out the window, be in the courtyard because you're going to see this shit go down. And What's interesting to me is for the first time in the show, maybe not the first time, but for the first time for a scene this large, all the students have unique faces. They are not just black faces or outlines of students implying a crowd. They drew every single face in this crowd and each one is unique. Yeah, I didn't think about that. They weren't just silhouettes this time. And like, just as a a general note over the course of this entire episode, it applies from beginning to finish. Last episode, I mean, it was one of our shortest recordings that we've ever done because that episode just zips through. It is pure plot. There is no frills. And we covered it all in record time. And it was a lot of setup for this one. And this one is super dense. There are multiple scenes every minute in this episode compared to last episode where one scene would last three, four minutes. This one is they are cranking through all these different moments and all of them have meaning. But beyond that, the animation quality in this episode is way higher than some of the others around it. Like the art in this episode is top notch. Um, You can tell when they were like scheduling stuff that like, 
And, and this is something that you can see in Western animation as well. Um, particularly if you look back at like the 90s and early 2000s, when hand animation was still being done, it's less common to see now with digital, but like digital first animation. But like when it in the era of hand animation, you can tell which episodes got the budget and the time allotted to them. This is one of those episodes. This one has a loving attention to detail in the art from beginning to end. The color balancing, like all the unique faces in the courtyard, they spent way more time on some of this stuff in this episode than they did the last episode. And it's just like a huge leap in quality compared to, say, the first season of the show, where we know it was a, a lower budget and tighter timelines and all of that. Uh, by the time we get to this part in the series, like things had gotten a bit more stable as far as like the size of the team and like how much time could be spent on things. And they poured all of it into this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really admirable how they jam pack like every second and every minute with something that grabs your attention, whether it's the plot itself or the visuals or both. <laughs> so they are definitely making a scene in front of the school. And by they, I mean Shiori. <laughs> um, because Ruka is very cold standoffish to Shiori as she's like begging for him to not end this again she says you're all I've ever loved and is like saying all these grandiose things and he just goes what do you want me to believe yeah he says that because she pleads with him to believe her yeah which is like a huge red flag that she is lying <laughs> <laughs> yeah so his whole statement of what do you want me to believe is so <laughs> it's crucial and a really good question because it's like do you want me to believe the truth which is that you've been lying this whole time and you you you've somehow created such a strong delusion for yourself that you genuinely believe it now He's there too. Like <laughs> they were <laughs> they were partners in this lie last episode. Right. But it's it like it just so happens she caught feelings in the middle of this. But did she or is it just like she got swept up in the theater and drama of it all? I mean, it's Shiori, right? Like it's a little of both. <laughs> yeah. I I will stand by this. Whatever Shiori says, in that moment, it is true to Shiori. I think she's so opaque to herself and her own motivations that there is no way to tell the difference between the truth and the lies from like her internal sense of meaning. Like, yes, there's like the objective facts part of it, like with the uh, like with the sword. And yeah. Ruka being like, yeah, that wasn't actually my sword. <laughs> yeah. Um, like that part, sure. Like, but in that moment, it's like the words she's saying may not be true, 
but the meaning I think is like her need is so strong that to her it becomes the truth. Like the layers of self-deception are so thick that there is no distinguishing whether or not she knows she's lying or like when she knows she's lying or when she is lying versus when she's telling the truth. Yeah, which is what makes his statement of like, what do you want me to believe? So it stands out to me (laughs) because he genuinely is like, come on, man, what do you want me to believe here? Like, do you want me to believe the lie that we've created together? Or... She's a Scarlett O'Hara character. Yeah, exactly. Like, that moment of him saying, what do you want me to believe? That is end of Gone with the Wind. That is, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn. Yeah. <laughs> like... Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. And she just responds with that I love you more than anyone else. And he doesn't say anything. Just he responds, let's go. He oh. responds with... The Apple iPhone okay emoji. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was a genuine response that I missed. <laughs> but actually, no, you are correct. He did respond with K. <laughs> um, if you don't have an iPhone, the okay emoji is the most sarcastic looking text I have ever seen. And I, I don't know how to explain why it's sarcastic. It just is. <laughs> <laughs> If you if you have an iPhone, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, uh, find someone who does and, and check. Google what that, it. Yeah, like <laughs> Google it. Find out what that emoji looks like. It it's just like impact font. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh. not like the friendly Android one that's like okay. Like on iPhone, it's just okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. He lets go, and it's. I love this moment here. Of we see in the shots of the crowd before, or I guess during their breakup, um, Utena and Anthe. And this particular moment, Anthe looks, sees Jury, turns back. Utena notices that Anthe looked at something, follows her lead sees jury and then it's like oh so anthony to me very obviously led her to that (laughs) um sometimes again i do think anthony is a little bit of an orchestrator and she's like she's like hey utena you don't want to miss this look at jury's walking away not in like a gossipy way but like a a narrator pointing um, the audience to where it wants to be perceived in the story. <laughs> That's okay. how I see Anthe sometimes. <laughs> All right. But yeah, like, Jury, for her part, doesn't stick around to watch this play out. She's like, All right, I've seen enough. I'm out. <laughs> Why would she want to see the person that she loves sobbing her heart out on the floor of this courtyard? over someone else who has stated before, like, get away from me. I don't want your pity. I don't want your help. Right. So it's like, a, there's nothing I can do. Why would I stay? And also, why would I continue to hurt myself? I just need to leave. So then we get 
what has become a, a theme throughout this arc of the show is the gossiping girls at the school. Um, we get a scene with the gossiping girls where we just see these insert shots around the school of them saying that Shiori's not coming to school and nobody's seen her. And one of them says Ruka was out of line in like how he treated her. And then the whole group kind of coalesces around the opinion. Yeah, but she kind of went overboard there. (laughs) Yeah, the whole group is like, (laughs) no, it was Shiori. And then they all just kind of nod and agree. And I'm like, I mean, you're not wrong, but that is a little fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just shows how the like the rumor mill in high schools can be where like, oh, yeah, they see the drama of this. They see Shiori completely melting down with no insight into what Ruka did to provoke that scale of response. And now I don't think that Ruka specifically provoked that level of response. Like some of that is entirely just down to who Shiori is and whatever like past trauma has made Shiori this way, you know, like her sensitivity to being rejected by Ruka is so intense. Yeah. Like that tells me there is some attachment trauma in Shiori's history. And I don't know that we ever get, like, proper insight into that. Mm -hmm. But, like, we are talking, like, abandonment by a parent or abuse within the home. Something on that scale, you know, to, to put her in a state where she is this sensitive to being rejected. And also where she will say whatever it takes and without any shame or without any sense of self-preservation in order to in order to maintain whatever attachments she can oh god that is really sad and we see the results of that play out in this episode we see it a little bit later but um we see shiori get checked up on and she does not look good i wrote (laughs) she i wrote she kind of looks like death She's really pallid. She's got dark circles under her eyes. She's like the equivalent of a wounded animal. Yeah. And we'll get there. Yeah. Um, but no, the next part in the episode um, is jury confronting. No, the next part in the episode is Utena confronting jury. Correct? Yeah. So... The next scene is in the fencing club and Utna and Anthe are watching from the balcony and Jury is coaching one of the students and uh, afterward she spots Utna and is kind of like, oh shit, here we go again. And yeah. we cut to <laughs> the conversation <laughs> that they're having where uh, she's basically going after Utena for butting in on her relationship with Shiori again, because this is now the second time or yeah, this is now the second time that she has done this. And last time she was told by multiple people, Hey, 
you gotta back off. Like, I know you mean well, but you just end up hurting everyone involved when you do this <laughs> because yeah. you don't get the feelings that are in play. Um, yeah. And- <laughs> Jury calls it Utena's bad habit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, like, we love her for this bad habit, right? Like, she is the person who who pokes at the thing that everyone else is, is like trying to avoid yeah. in order to get everyone to deal with it, you know? Cause like yeah. everyone else in this scene is perfectly willing to just avoid discussing it, avoid addressing it in any way. And Utina comes along like, Hey, 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 you deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> Which I get it. You know, she sees, people suffering and wants to help um but it is butting in on other people's business (laughs) yeah and like very importantly compared to like the dueling stuff that she does in the first episode and stuff like that utina doesn't have a way that she can actually help this scenario right there's no concrete action that utina can take to make any of this better no and she (laughs) she tries to be like a friend of yours is being treated like this and you're just going to stand by and like, let it happen. Cause that's the only thing that she can think of as an actionable item. But jury knows sure. He's not going to want me to help her. Yeah. But she does like, she does go to Shiori's uh, dorm room at, at one point. But before we get there, Utina is kind of like debriefing this with Anthe in their bedroom. <laughs> Yeah. And the conversation turns to the idea that Jury not seeking out Shiori is also part of how Jury feels about Shiori. Like, as much as she loves Shiori, her staying out of this also reflects something true about Jury's feelings. Yeah. And Anthe says something like really interesting and a little bit cryptic here she says sometimes people say things they wouldn't ordinarily say or do things they ordinarily wouldn't mm-hmm. and utina again with the poking and prodding goes right for the bait she says do you do that sometimes and i have to tell you like this is a moment <laughs> where i feel a little bit called out as a therapist <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, people will talk about a third party as a way to avoid talking about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it is often part of our job to, like, bring the focus back to the person themselves. And so, like, if you go into therapy and tell a story about somebody, it is literally my job to turn it back and say, okay, what part of that do you relate to? Yeah. You know, like what part of that is similar to something you've done or you've felt, you know, stuff like that in order to keep the focus on you because you're the client, not the person you're telling the story about. Well, and nine times out of 10, the reason why that story sticks out in your mind is because you relate to some part of it after all. Yes, exactly. And so (laughs) in this moment, when Anthe is talking about how yeah, sometimes people do this. And Utina goes right for it and says, do you? <laughs> it gets her. 
Anthe's about to admit something. She's about to confess something important to Utena. But again, and I think this is the second or third time she's done this, she backs off from admitting what's on her mind. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be any number of things. It could be about her history. It could be about Akio. Mm-hmm. It could be about the school. It could be about her own feelings for Utena. Like, we don't know at this point what she's about to say. Right. We know that Anthe's box of secrets is like a D&D bag of holding. Like, you can reach in and always pull something out, and there will still be more in there. <laughs> <laughs> but... We don't know which one she was about to pull out and reveal for us today uh, because that's also, where the scene ends. Also, you know what I just realized? This was an episode entirely without a choo-choo appearance at all. And I get it's probably because it the episode is focused on Juri, Ruka, Shiori, their triangle. I mean, it barely features Utena. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, but I... I I do just kind of want to mark that, that yeah. this was a choo-choo-less episode. Since I didn't even catch that. So that is a good catch. Since we've kind of attributed uh, choo-choo to being Anthe's like, stand-in or emotional state um, or the one that brings levity whenever she's feeling something too intensely, um, I think it's an interesting and important signifier, especially in light of this conversation that they've had. Of her letting her guard down more and more with Utena. Oh, yeah. For sure. Because, like, just before this whole Ruka arc, we had Choo Choo's rebirth. Yeah. Or, alternatively, Choo Choo has a kid out there somewhere. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I, I stand by the rebirth thing. Me too. But, like, there are fan theories out there that Choo Choo gave birth to something as well. And... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. Um, Another magical monkey mouse. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully. My God. Uh, Let's see. Oh, there is one other thing that I want to point out about this scene. And I'll talk more about it at the very end of the episode. But in the background of their big, beautiful stained glass window that's in the room, which, by the way, at this point is enormous. I feel like it started much smaller and has now gotten to be gigantic. <laughs> um, but, you know, it still has the rose at the very top. But the background is um, the starry sky. And this episode has a shooting star or a meteorite. I honestly kind of think it's a meteorite. Um, I mean, those are the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, burning out like it's burning its trail so brightly um and the base of the window is like the part of the trail um towards the end where like the light is kind of phasing out and at the closer to the top is the meteorite itself um again that's just burning so brightly just remember that we're gonna come back to it um because that imagery is important in this episode so The next thing that happens in the episode is a cut to outside of what we can assume is Ruka's dorm and his answering machine and Shiori just going, I know you're there. 
you could at least hear me out. It, y'all. So, quick point. <laughs> for those who don't know what is going on here, for those who are too young, ah, yes. before voicemail, before like it was all handled digitally, um, like in the 90s, people had like actual recording devices with tapes in it that would answer the phone for you and record the message. Voicemail is just like the digital version of that. But um, what's happening here is a 90s answering machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, y'all, I, on one hand, like, yes, you feel bad for her because obviously she's going through something. But I, I kind of had to laugh a little bit at this one <laughs> just because of the, the stark difference between this is Ruka, leave a message, beep, to I know you're there. <laughs> <laughs> Just- oh yeah. So uh to finish to finish my explanation there, um uh, this is before the era of like caller ID. Uh-huh. And so in order to screen calls, what you would do is force someone to leave a message and that's how you would find out who was calling. <laughs> so this thing of like her saying, I know you're there means like she knows he's just not picking up his phone mm-hmm. um this is before the time of cell phones where you could just assume that people have their phone on them all the time like being home to answer the phone was a thing that like you had like it was a prerequisite to answering the phone back then um and so like to be calling and then to call him out as i know you're there i know you're hearing this um is like another part of it because like with an answering machine you'd be able to pick up the phone and interrupt the recording once you knew who was calling Mm -hmm. as opposed to like voicemail where they have to like finish leaving their message and like if you try to call them while they're still leaving the message like it won't go through um but yeah she like he is screening his calls and she is just spamming him with messages yeah, so kind of understandable why he's screening his calls. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, he's not even there. He's in the car with Toga and Akio, um, which I feel like is one of the few scenes that we get of people just riding in the car together outside of the whole Toga speech and spiel. Um, yeah, because previously we had only seen Toga riding in the car with Akio. Yes. Like aside from the recruitment speech, um, it was just Toga was the only casual rider. Yeah. So now we've got another. And the important thing that comes out of this conversation between it's not really the three of them. Akio doesn't really say much um, or anything at all from what I remember. Um, it's just really Toga and Ruka talking. The thing that comes out of this is that Ruka says, I have a reason to win this no matter what. And then he repeats the line that um, he says, she says there are no miracles and it pans to jury. And you hear the sounds of fencing going on in the background. Yeah. And also in that scene, it's revealed that he knew he was going to lose. He went into that fight with Utena knowing that he wasn't going to win it. He was always aiming for recruiting Juri to fight again. Mm-hmm. 
So this is like the big reveal that we have been talking about previously of like, why is Ruka going so hard to fuck with Jury's head? And this is the reveal of like, it was always to provoke her into getting back into the dueling game. Yeah. And then we get the jury goes to visit Shiori scene, wherein she looks a little understandably rough. And um, as expected, jury is rebuffed um, angrily (laughs) by Shiori. Um, I don't quite understand why she thinks jury is out to get her so bad. Especially when um, Shiori says, you know, did you come to laugh at me? You must be really happy now. And she, uh, Jury is like, I'd never. And then she cuts her off immediately. So, like, she doesn't even give her a chance to speak. Yeah. And even though, like, it took Utena's goading in order to do it, Jury does show up. She is, I guess, one of the only people to actually take the time to check on Shiori. Yeah. And and Shiori, so deep into her self-loathing as she is, cannot take the kindness and is just angry that Jury is there. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, what would it mean for her to accept that kind gesture, you know? I guess. I don't know. I don't... I don't see the the harm in it <laughs> the way that Shiori does other than I guess she's talked about like just not wanting to admit to herself that Jury is better than she is because she sees it as this weird like competition almost kind of thing but like uh you're better than me and you always rub it in your in my face and yeah it's, it's a it's a really well, it's a really think, weird way to look at somebody. I think if she were to accept that kindness from Jury, it would mean having to confront her own feelings for Jury. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess it is rejection in the most ultimate form of I will not even accept a kind word from you because if I do, I have to admit something. So then after that, it's Jury talking to Ruka. And asking him to take Shiori back because it will make Shiori happy. And Ruka's like, I'm sorry. I can't do what you ask. You know, I know you've got a friendship with her. Um, But honestly, she's a piece of shit. Is basically what he says. (laughs) He's like, she's self-centered. She's pushy. She's spoiled. And you know what? She's also a liar. So fuck her basically is what he does and goes to leave (laughs) and oh he twists the knife further he says who would even want a girl like that yeah so all of this is very obviously again in the light of the conversation from the car is very obviously a ploy to provoke jury into fighting and he gets what he wants here she calls him a bastard and goes to hit him which good for her, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> and then secondly, um, he catches both fists that she throws, both punches she throws at him, and he turns it around on her. And 
asks her out. <laughs> now, I know now that um, even though it's coming from a um, not quite mischievous, but like a place with a little bit of an edge from him, it is still genuine because this, as we learned through the episode, is what he's wanted this whole time. Wait, he you're going to have to be more specific. What is this in that sentence? He didn't want Shiori. He wanted Jury. He wanted... So the triangle, in sum, is Shiori likes Ruka. Ruka likes Jury. Jury likes Shiori. No one is satisfied in this triangle. <laughs> <laughs> um... And again, even though it has a little bit of an edge, he ultimately wants to see Jury happy. Now, he wants, he would prefer it to be with him. Well, he knows that it can't be with him. Yes. And like, that's a secret, but like, he already knows that his clock is winding down here. Uh, so I, I just, I do want to like point out though, like the whole forcing a kiss on her and you know like this whole concept of uh, basically demanding that they be together <laughs> mm -hmm. like when when folks talk about the compat in this show this is one of the moments like this is one of the examples of it where like jury's super gay <laughs> yeah 100 percent. dude just asked out a lesbian like and full is on <laughs> really pushy about it too yeah and and like he takes the opportunity to pickpocket the locket so that he can dangle it in her face and then step on it yeah i mean that's like that's i would argue the most pushy that someone can get about i want you to like me so much so that i'm willing to step on the literal love of your life <laughs> and Ultimately, like, we know that he's not actually interested in dating her, right? Like, we know from the actual plot of all of this, like, where his goals actually lie is in freeing Jury from her obsession with Shiori. Because, like, as a friend, as the team captain, he sees what this is doing to her, you know, like... Yeah. He is not blind to the fact that her obsession with Shiori has her completely trapped. She challenges him to a duel to settle all of this and promises to do whatever he wants if he wins. And if she wins, she doesn't get to finish what she's saying, but presumably it's either get back together with Shiori or leave Shiori alone. She doesn't get to finish her sentence there. And he had just agreed to getting back together with Shiori. And this whole like back and forth game that they're playing. I assume that means that her challenge is to leave Shiori alone. Because otherwise, like she wouldn't need to duel him to get her way on that. Mm -hmm. And so then we have the commercial break. And just as we're leading into the break, we see like the dueling happen at sundown. We just get a quick flash of it 
It's out by the water's edge again. And when we come back from commercial, the duel is over. And we find out through like the implication of the dialogue that she has lost. Yeah. And the background goes from before the break to this like bright, fiery orange sunset to cold bluish darkness. They're just sitting there in the dark after the sunset, ruminating and talking over the loss. And Ruka is talking about like how amazing of a duelist she is and her potential. And this is getting at what you were about to say. Like, yeah. this is where he points out that even covered in dirt, your brilliance shone through. And her Which reply was, eventually I hit a wall. Which, by the way, the dirt comment, you could almost kind of take as, like, another jab at Shiori. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you really could. Um, but yeah, her saying she hit a wall and him going, really? Like, that's the extent to which Shiori has a hold on her is she even holds, or not she, but jury's obsession over shiori and reluctance to let her go holds her back from her fullest potential even in fencing which is wild to think about like emotional stunting yeah you know you can see not being able to let go of a relationship or potential of one a crush you know your first love you could see that but to where it even impacts your passions, your hobbies, your ability to perform. That's a lot. That's oh, yeah. really, really far reaching. <laughs> oh, yeah. And like that stunting, I think, plays out with all of the characters, really. Like yeah. we see it with Mickey and his music. Well, that's everybody at Otori Academy, right? Like yeah. that's why they're all eternally young. <laughs> um. Is because something is keeping them from growing and therefore growing up. Right. And Ruka is one of those few people who has left the school and has come back, in this case, in order to free somebody at the school from whatever is binding them. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, in a sense, like the opposite of Mikage. <laughs> yeah. Where uh, he came back in order to uh, get back into the game, really. Or, in a sense, like, he's kind of the opposite of Shiori in this moment. She came back to set the hook even deeper on Juri. Yeah. Which, again, makes me wonder what brought Shiori back in the first place. And, like, what she's trapped feeling and unable to uh, move on from pretty sure it's jury. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then who shows up? Uh, <laughs> actually, no, let me, let me take that back. The next part is Ruka going, there's someone I'd like for you to meet. And they've just been sitting again in pure darkness this whole time. And then all of a sudden, the headlights of the car flick on. And Jory's like, ah, oh, God, what? <laughs> <laughs> and 
Ruka goes, say your line, Toga, which is just so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walking oh, like God. right up to the fourth wall and just putting a hand on it without breaking it. <laughs> <laughs> putting a hand on the fourth wall and doing like a, uh, a fuck boy, like smirk into the <laughs> reflection. <laughs> so yeah, uh, for once it is Ruka who gives the speech and then Toga who gives like the final line of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get in the car and <laughs> The first thing that they do is one of them, I think it's Ruka, presses play on the tape deck in the car. Oh, God. It's just playing the answering machine tape from earlier over and over again of Shiori professing herself to Ruka. And it's just like twisting that knife deeper and deeper for uh, for jury. Yeah, man. Jury asked a totally normal question of where are you taking me? And Ruka's response is, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> like, why? I don't think we needed that much venom. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> <laughs> but this is all like pushing her to her very limit, right? Like, yeah. this is how deep this goes for her. Like, he has to push it this far to even get a rise out of jury on this one because like if he lets the the protests stand like in his view she's just going to retreat back into her shell like he has to force her completely out of her comfort zone on this which kind of speaks to how fucked up this entire like scenario is (laughs) yeah um and he insists that he can bring Juri to her full potential and that together they can beat Utena. And then gain the power to work miracles. And he says something very specific here. He says, the power to grant miracles requires a sacrifice. And he calls Shiori naive for thinking otherwise. Like, you can't just want it. You have to sacrifice something to get it. Continuing with like the biblical references in this show, like Ruka is giving the whole Abraham and Isaac speech here of, you know, if you want miracles, if you want God's attention, you got to sacrifice something. Don't you know? Don't you know, jury? In order, if you really love something, you have to go up on the highest mountain and kill it. Kill the thing you love. (laughs) Which... In this case is like not quite literal, but very close in terms of like killing her love for Shiori. Yeah. Well, and in I hate to play devil's advocate here, but in Ruka's defense, if he had been there and seen, which I don't know if he was or not, but if he had seen what Shiori did in the first triangle that was there, where Shiori went after the guy that she thought was in love with jury or that jury liked one of the two. She sacrificed jury to get what she wanted. So like, I can kind of see how he came to this conclusion because it did work before she got her miracle. You know, 
And that's what he keeps pointing to throughout this episode is like, well, did she get her miracle? I mean, kind of. She got what she thought she wanted, which was like a one up on jury and to take away something that jury loved or that loved her. So she thought she got her miracle. She only found out later she didn't. (laughs) What kind of monkey's paw shit is that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. Wasn't it during the Black Rose saga that jury revealed? Or was it the before that? That jury revealed, no, I didn't love him. I think it was implied in the first jury episode when we find out it was Shiori in the locket, but it was in the Black Rose stuff where Jury says, like, I never loved him. Yeah. Okay. Because she's saying that to Shiori. And Shiori came back during the Black Rose arc. Yeah. So we've talked about the car as a metaphor for sex, but in like the true Freudian sense here, uh, I also want to talk about the car as a metaphor for death or at least like the awareness of the inevitability of it where like that inevitability of death is part of what drives people to make the most of their time while they are trapped in this bubble in a Tory Academy nothing matters they're caught in these eternal cycles and you know, the imminence of death is not um, on anyone's mind. You know, they're young, they're kids. That is rarely a thought that kids like obsess over. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we talk about, like the show talks about how getting in the car with Akio, he supposedly shows you something. And as much as like, it's easy to joke about, yeah, he shows you his dick. Like, <laughs> I think on a deeper level, it's also showing, like, bringing these kids to recognize the inevitability of death. Like, this is the third arc of the show. Um, this is the make it or break it moment. There is no prize for second place when it comes to the Rose Bride. So either you care enough about this to put something on the line and fight for it or you don't. And so far everyone has stepped up and said, okay, when you put it like that, (laughs) um, I'd rather make something of my life before I die than not. Um, They all step up to fight. And I think that becomes most obvious in like this particular conversation for a couple of reasons. The first is what I was talking about earlier with like the Abraham and Isaac parallel of the power of miracles coming through sacrifice. The other is we know now that we've seen the episode, we know that Ruka is on his deathbed. He has forced himself to get out of bed and come back to a Tory Academy in a sense, sacrificing himself, offering his own death to get Jury out of her rut. Yeah, and might I add, um, has also thrown himself into some 
really intense fencing battles. <laughs> like, not just the duel in the last episode, but literally every fencing spar he has done has been really intense. He's fought jury at least twice or sparred, you know, against her at least twice in these two episodes. Like he is pushing himself to the absolute limit, which is wild to think about that this person is about to die. And here he is pushing himself past his physical limit to get her to wake up. And I think that like the fact that he's about to die means that that limit no longer matters to him so much. Yeah. Right. Like if it's going to happen, the difference between happening this week and next week doesn't matter if by pushing himself this hard this week, he can make something meaningful of it. Yeah. Not that I think that it fully excuses how he goes about doing it. Like I, I'm not a big believer in like death as redemption. <laughs> huh. um, I, I think that's used a little too easily in fiction because like redeeming a character who doesn't die is a lot trickier and a lot longer of an arc. And frankly, a lot of times writers are just too lazy to do it that way. But like, yeah, he pushes himself way past his limit. And as we find out, is going to die right after. But we start the duel at the 13-minute mark of the episode. I think this is one of the earliest duels in the series. There's one other thing I want to say about the car encounter before we move on. Okay. And that's... Ruka brings up something about the one who yearns for miracles. He says, weren't those your words? Believe in miracles and they will know your feelings. So this whole time, I have thought that that was Shiori's voice. It was Shiori's that. voice. Okay. So then at some point, Jury parroted that or she was the one who started it and then it caught on with Shiori? Seems like maybe the latter. But interesting that that's where it started and then eventually jury was like, yeah, miracles aren't real. That shit's bullshit. It doesn't exist. But the other interesting thing here is that jury says, even if I gain the power to work miracles, all I desire is to release her from you, which is the exact thing that Ruka is feeling for her right now. It's horribly poetic and sad. And the truth is, like, both of them could just let her go. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> They're fighting over forcing the other one to do this. And it's like, if that's both of their goals, call a truce and just let her go. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that the they don't realize the other ones. Well, Ruka knows jury's intentions. Yeah. But not the other way around. Right. She just sees kind of what she wants to see, plus is blinded by her own obsession. So then we get the duel, which is, by time code, I think one of the earliest duels in an episode. This one comes in at like the 13 minute mark. 
Um, we skip right over the Shadow Girls this time. Like we yeah. go straight from Ruka and Juri together challenging Utena straight into the duel. And Ruka draws Juri's sword and the panel is drawn in just this gorgeous, slightly desaturated tone. And it's another one of those panels in this episode that has received a ton of attention artistically. Yeah, it's beautiful, but cold. Um, and that is because of the the saturation difference, but also just the lining feels a little bit darker. Like it feels like there's more definition there. And there's more shadows. Yes. And then the song starts. And this song is I Am All the Mysteries in Creation. And the song starts out talking about um, parts of the body. But then it goes on to talking about... Uh, it, this one's kind of word salad. But <laughs> in that word salad... <laughs> Uh, we do have references to uh, the Eucharist, which is the traditional um, sacrifice in Catholic churches. It's the body of Christ cracker. <laughs> yes. Um, and they refer to it in the song as a sacrament. Uh, they talk about faith and virtue. It also references salamanders, which I don't fully get the reference there. Interesting. Um, I think it has to do with regeneration, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good guess. <laughs> um, and then it goes through a list of names of uh, castles and palaces. At least those are the names I recognize, like Alhambra, Nukvenstein, um, Versailles. Like, I'm assuming that means the rest of them are, but I don't know. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I did catch like a bunch of them are castles. So I'm assuming that the whole list is. I could be wrong. Um, and yeah. So again, this focus on the body goes back to the idea of sacrifice for miracles. And specifically circling around this very particular biblical sense of sacrifice. This duel is intercut with the duel that Ruka and Jury had earlier. So we didn't get to see it back then. And they do like a really cool editing thing where they put that duel here almost in place of the duel that she's having with Utena. Because again, especially in this arc, but all throughout the series, these duels are more psychological than physical. And we know that the actual psychological duel for Jury was the one that was happening earlier in the episode. This is just a rinse and repeat of that. So they intercut it with this one. Utena may as well not even have been there in this case. Like she's going through the motions again while Jury is having her existential crisis. Yeah. And I'll add that. Um, Jury is having an existential crisis, but is having the duel of her fucking life. Oh, yeah. She is way more aggressive in this one. Yeah. Way more aggressive, but also, like, you can tell she is not mentally there. 
like she like you said she's still in the fight from before but she is giving utena everything she's got even when she's on autopilot utena is barely able to stay on her feet she's giving like she's and i hate to use this framing so sorry she's giving it to her so good (laughs) she can barely stand (laughs) Uh, you know in my mind it didn't sound like that didn't sound like a euphemism but here we are (laughs) it's like that's how the uh hidden sapphic feelings come out huh they come out that hard yeah sounds (laughs) sounds about right sounds about right (laughs) so we come to the crucial moment of this duel and i i didn't talk about this earlier but like throughout the episode there has been this reference to like these three chairs and that's jury shiori and ruka and usually the chairs are empty but someone will always be sitting in one of them and throughout this duel we're cutting back and forth to this imagery of the three of them um i think part of where i was getting the impression that the boy from the first couple episodes of juries was ruka is that in this duel they insert the shot of shiori kissing the boy over the head of jury while ruka is dueling jury like while he's talking about himself and jury and shiori and so like either that is the boy from the first ones and last episode has some messed up continuity stuff or they're trying to have their cake and eat it too (laughs) by um referencing him in this moment when Ruka is the one on our mind. Yeah, I mean, even the silhouette's hair kind of looks like Ruka's now. So I don't know if it was it's like a placeholder, like mentally Jury is putting him there, you know, like re- rewriting the scene a little bit. I don't know. Maybe. What we do know, though, is that the key moment here at the end of the duel Utna does her Dios thrust and full-on misses the rose. Her Dios thrust, huh? I'm sorry. What's wrong with me? (laughs) So she full-on misses the rose, but what she cuts off is Jury's locket. And this happens right after Ruka, in flashback, was telling Jury that Shiori's a fool and you only get miracles by sacri- or standing on the sacrifices of others. And so Ruka says this, gets in Juri's head, Utina cuts off Juri's locket. The locket falls to the ground broken. Yeah, that the chain is in pieces, like the whole, it's, it's gone. It's done for. And at that moment, Utina falls. She goes tumbling. Like, we've seen this shot of Utina falling down before, but, like, not after the thrust, not after she's supposed to win the duel. We see very clearly Jury's rose is fully intact and Utina is laid out. Yeah. And we know from the first duel, Jury is actually capable of deflecting 
the thrust with the power of Dios. Yeah. Of all the duelists, she's actually capable of deflecting that attack. Yeah. And it looks like she's done it again. This time, at the sacrifice of the thrust getting a little too close and cutting off her locket. I'll also add here that there's like a couple flashes of things that happen so quickly. There's the the flashback where Ruka is saying, don't you think that's unfair? The power of Dios comes down. The locket gets cut off. Ruka calls out to jury in all caps, like genuinely concerned for her. And also that scene of the three chairs, Shiori is sitting in one of them. And it's almost like she looks up and makes eye contact with jury. Like, I don't know if it's like seeing through time (laughs) (laughs) and they like see each other somehow um, or if she felt something. But the way that the the shot of the chairs is always done is overhead. And this particular one is so close to Shiori so that she looks up and we are looking directly into her eyes. So that to me was like a recognition moment of Shiori sensing, seeing, feeling something. The fact that it happens when the locket gets cut off is too significant to dismiss. Almost like the second this is taken away from her, from Jury. Shiori recognizes it. So then, Jury is completely shattered by this. Like her psyche breaks along with the locket. Yeah. Because like it hits the ground, it shatters, and she has presumably won the duel. We don't actually know the status of Utena's rose at this point, but Utena's on the ground, Jury could just finish her off. And Jury's rose is intact, but Her entire focus is on the fact that she has lost her locket. She staggers away and in this moment pulls her own rose off and drops it on the ground. Essentially forfeiting the duel. Exactly. So in this moment, she gives up. She would rather have Shiori than the power of miracles. Because she could take it right now. She could walk over to Utena, grab her by the collar, and cut her rose off. We have seen people almost do that to Utena before in this scenario. Utena is prone. There is no reason that someone as talented as Jury couldn't just do that. Instead, she forfeits. And I promised last week that we would come back to this email from listener James... And I was going to save it for this exact moment because it's actually kind of about this moment. So James writes, the podcast has been enjoyable to listen to. And as a fan of the show, it's interesting to hear others' thoughts on the show. I don't know if there's a prevailing thought on this, but my last rewatch, I noticed something I feel silly for having missed previously as it is so obvious. The show takes the time to show the petals of the losing duelist's rose scattering to the wind or the petals coming off their chest. However, Jury's rose is never destroyed when she loses. In the first duel, the rose is pierced, but remains whole as it slides down the blade. And in her second duel, she removes it herself and tosses it to the ground whole. 
What is the significance, if any, in Juries Rose remaining whole throughout the series? So what's your take on that? I mean, we've talked before about how Jury is worthy, but just misses the mark every time. I feel like her Rose staying whole signifies that. You know, Dios or the Rose Bride's champion are not going to scatter her rose because she is worthy um, of being the protagonist of this show, of being the Rose Bride's champion and um, fiance. She just gets in her own way every time. So it's not that somebody else scatters it. Um, She does something to sabotage herself before anyone else can. It's both the symbol of like, she is worthy, but she sabotages herself. I think that's where the symbolic imagery lies. Yeah, I I want to say like, I think it's about choice. Jury, yeah. jury is routinely the one who chooses to lose rather than taking the opportunities to win. Well, and even the first duel where the, the first duel where Utena gets disarmed and the sword just pierces through the rose. It's I feel like it's both a comment of jury's choice because, you know, her actions led to that moment, but also kind of the power of Dios kind of being a little cheeky there. Like it almost feels like a divine intervention <laughs> moment. <laughs> In that more particular so, duel. More so than just like Dios showing up as divine intervention. Yeah. <laughs> um, like a literal, what are the odds of that happening? Lightning striking in the same place twice within seconds of each other kind of scenario. Um, but like in that case, I think it's like jury's refusal to believe in the the power of miracles, in the power of, you know, random things happening that turn out well yeah or in her favor yeah and since she doesn't believe that random things can go her way they don't yeah so it is both it is her choice and her sabotaging herself like the only times that we see her lose like actually lose are in like the practice duels kind of to show ruka's skill the fights in the dueling arena itself always come down to this matter of choice for her. I think it'll be interesting to see when we get to the movie what that looks like. Because Jury's going to show up in the movie too. Oh, good. You know, I will say I was really hoping that we were going to get to see Jury and Ruka face off in the dueling arena this episode. I know we had their duel interspersed with Utena and Jury's duel, and that was really cool. But I really wanted to see her kick his ass. <laughs> I was, it's like the Tyra Banks meme. We were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. I think it would have been interesting to see this as a three part episode where Jury wins this one. <laughs> or that, you know, like Ruka won last time. And then it's up to Jury to fight Ruka or something. You know, like, they don't play with the formula much after, aside from, like, 
the idea of Black Rose duelists and this idea of, you know, drawing the duelist's own heart sword. Mm-hmm. They don't mess with the formula much in terms of the stakes as far as Utena goes. Like, she's been the presumed victor pretty much from the start. And Toga's victory seems like a fluke now in retrospect. Or, you know, the um, absurdist humor third part to the episode where Jury goes to fight Ruka and Ruka's just defending in the fucking casket. (laughs) (laughs) She goes to strike and it's just his hand like automatically moving to defend the moves. Now, Now I am picturing this duel happening where Jury is the one climbing the stairs to the arena. Yes. And she gets there and it's just Ruka's casket propped up (laughs) and open. Yes. For her to walk over and take his rose off (laughs) because he's dead. (laughs) She has to defend against the marionette's sword. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I think that Ultimately, the the meaning of all of this is, of all of the duelists, I think Jury has the most noble of goals, which at the heart of it is just the courage to express her feelings of love to somebody. Never mind that that person is a trash fire. Right. Like, internally, for Jury, the courage to be herself openly is what she's fighting for. Yeah, and this is the most shaken up we have ever seen her to date. Throughout the whole show, Jury has been this pillar of well-put-together, confident, um, has the ability to back it up. um, And when that locket gets knocked off of her, she is so shaken that she can barely breathe. We've never seen a character as well put together as her up until this moment, I don't think. So, like you said, psychologically shaken to her core. And it's something. I mean, it's jarring to witness. Like her stumbling and ragged breathing and like holding her chest. They executed this reaction and scene incredibly well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you can see just the attention to detail that this entire episode got. And this scene at the end, from the editing to the animation, is just flawless. Yeah. So then we get the three chairs again. And this time, it's Jury sitting in one of them. And she's just kind of pondering the situation. (laughs) And we get this conversation happening between Nanami and Mickey about how Ruka hasn't come back to the school. And... They're having this conversation in the balcony above the fencing room as Jury is coaching um, within the room and she goes to visit one of the duelists who was injured. And she's telling her, you know, it's fine, it'll be all right, which echoes what Ruka said at the very end of the duel, which was, Jury, it'll be all right. Yeah. And this moment with Ruka, it hits on like two levels. Because as we've immediately after this find out, Ruka has died. And so like him telling her it'll be all right 
is in a sense like him letting go of his life, really. And also very compassionately letting her know like the fact that this secret is out isn't the end for you. And so it's nice that like after this, we see her with this student in the like the nurse's office, like in the hospital or the clinic or whatever. Um, whether that's like on campus or off, it's not clear. <laughs> um, I think it's the nurse's office on campus, um, letting her know that like, you know, it'll be fine. Seeing Jury back, you know, in her element as herself is really nice. And so that Shadow Girls moment got pushed off until right now, where the Shadow Girls appear as nurses in shadow on the wall as Jury is leaving the nurse's office. And they talk about how this, there was a patient who died, and apparently he knew how sick he was and insisted on going back to school anyway. And they say he wanted to give the power to grant miracles to the one he loved. He wanted to set her free. And Jury is right there listening to them say this and jury asks what did you hope to gain pursuing the power to grant miracles and who did you help who did you hope to help by getting it i mean we as the audience know it was for her yeah i mean she's just being dense in this moment (laughs) yeah like i almost take it as like a her processing everything that's happened and his death type of thing. And as she's asking this question, Shiori arrives and follows after her, which is an interesting like full circle on their relationship because it doesn't really answer the question of whether the two of them get together or anything like that. It's there to be interpreted that way, but we don't get to see how that resolves. We don't get to see whether jury forgives Shiori. Or whether Shiori even apologizes for any of the bullshit that has happened. Yeah, she does look better than she did post-Ruka breakup. um, And just kind of seems curious and maybe a little hopeful when she follows behind Juri. Um, But yeah, Juri doesn't really seem to give her an indication of acknowledgement or anything. She just keeps walking as shiori follows behind her so i do think that it's just meant to signify like the next stage of their relationship wherein hopefully one is not uh hating the other (laughs) (laughs) uh and the other is more is able to more openly be themselves actually both of them honestly (laughs) so what do you think happens next time Oh, man, we're coming back to the Anthe Akio Utena bullshit. Um, It's not really bullshit, but kinda. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a line of like, there are people you shouldn't fall in love with, right? Yeah, but still you can't help it. Is there someone you love? Yes, very much. Oh, we're getting close. Who do you think Utena is talking about there? Oh, I mean, come on. Come on. Obviously, it's (laughs) choo-choo. No, I mean, obviously, it's Anthe. Um, 
Is I, it obvious? <laughs> I well, don't know that it's obvious there because she's asking Anthe for advice. Yeah, but she's like, there's like this long, like, um, longing glance from Utena, and it's it's reminiscent of when they're like laying in the bed, looking at each other. <sighs> All those times they held hands, like, come on. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It could be like, honestly, the show could pull a fast one and be like, here's this scenario where should these two people fall in love? But it's like, we've already got like multiple examples right here happening. And guess what? They're all going to be in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What if Utena sees something happen between Akio and Anthe? Oh, my God. I really hope that's not it. Knowing this show, it very well could be. I mean, I don't think she'd be asking that particular question, at least like in this episode, if that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she'd be like coyly asking like, so is there someone you love? Like, <laughs> that would be like genuinely disgusting. <laughs> no, no. Oh my God. No, I meant more the question of like, there are people you shouldn't fall in love with, right? So yeah. that's that's why I was like, oh god, I really hope it's not this nightmare scenario. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'll see if Choo Choo makes an appearance next episode too. I have a feeling he will. So we do have more listener mail. Hell yeah, woo! Um, the uh, Nanami's egg episode really brought folks out for this. Uh- yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So this first one is from Naomi. Uh, Naomi writes, so I've l- only listened to your first two episodes of the podcast, but I'm already obsessed. I'm so glad for you. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Um, I love that for you. Um, I'm so happy for the existence of this pod and that I actually stumbled upon it. Thank you for chatting and analyzing one of my most beloved animes. The themes of revolution, femininity, and generational curses are unparalleled to any other anime, in my humble opinion. Also, as an interracial Black and Asian woman, Anthe's experience hits home. The perceived hypermasculinity of Black women in juxtaposition with the perceived hyperfemininity of Asian women is something I've been grappling with my entire life. Ikuhara packed so much into Anthe. I've never been so represented before. It's like looking in a mirror. This anime has actually been my saving grace. I have been through a similar experience to Anthe, and I struggled to process it until I found revolutionary girl Utena. I love how Anthe's revolution is to take back the life that was taken from her. Her revolution to ultimately be so strong she doesn't need a hero, she is the hero. Anyways, if you read this, thank you. I hope even after you're done with revolutionary girl Utena, you continue chatting about Ikuhara's other works. It would be interesting if you guys also watched Yurikuma Arashi and Mawaru Penguin Drum and chatted about how those animes express the same themes as Revolutionary Girl Utena. Much love, Naomi. Yay! Well, thank Thanks, you, Naomi. Naomi. Yeah. Um, first off, I want to offer just my boundless compassion for you that you have gone through anything similar to some of the stuff that happens in this show. Um, that is an incredibly difficult thing to experience, and I am glad you found something that resonated with you on that level, where you felt seen by it. Uh, 
those scenarios, those kinds of things that happen to people, those traumas are rarely depicted in a compassionate and earnest way, in a way that isn't also exploitative. And it's part of why I feel like this show has the value that it does. And to hear that it has helped you in that way is great to hear, even though like the circumstances leading up to it obviously are not are not great. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that and sh sharing that part of your story. Um, we are still in the process of talking about what we do next. I will say Moaru Penguin Drum and Yurikuma and Sarah's on my are on the list. Um, we're still just kind of casting about for like what exactly we want to do. Um, we still have a couple months yet to figure that out and we'll be announcing it before we do. Uh, but good to know that we have one more vote for uh, following through on Ikuhara's other works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, truly, thank you for sharing your experience. It's really valuable and really appreciated. I'm just essentially echoing what Autumn has already said, but that's it. So if you have your thoughts that you want to share with us, um, you can write in to us at Absolute Destiny, a podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at Zetai Unme Pod. I'm also personally on Twitter at Life in Neon. And I'm also there at Car Cutie. And you can find like us on Twitch and all other kinds of stuff uh, using those usernames too. We do have a couple more listener mails to get through. But some of them reference stuff that will make more sense in a little bit. So if you sent something in and you haven't heard it yet, it is coming. We did get it. Uh, I'm just saving it for when it's a bit more relevant and less spoilery. So thank you for those of you who have written in so far. And again, thank you to Naomi and to James for this episode. And we will catch you next time. Bye.